History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 55, Still Loud on the Western Front. The last episode covered the Battle of Mikale, a paradigm-shifting battle in which the Greek fleet agreed to support Ionian rebels, sailed to Anatolia, and defeated a Persian army and fleet in a land battle. After the battle, The Greek fleet returned to Samos, the first of the Aegean islands to openly go into revolt, and accepted several additional Ionian islands into the Hellenic League, effectively formalizing mainland Greek support for a second Ionian revolt. Although the Spartans under King Leotychidas had briefly suggested transplanting all of the Ionians to mainland cities taken from Medizing pro-Persian Greeks, The Athenians vehemently opposed that plan. It would be impossible for the Greek allies to effectively defend all of Ionia forever. Even if they could maintain their alliance, which they couldn't, they simply didn't have the manpower. But maybe they didn't need it. Between Macaulay and Salome, almost the entire Persian fleet was crippled, sunken, or burned. Fifty years of naval buildup gone in just two battles. If the Greeks could maintain naval dominance in the eastern Mediterranean, they might be able to make Ionia 
more trouble than it was worth for the great king. And that's really the name of the game here. I think a lot of people are probably looking forward to some kind of big wrap-up to this war like I had after Marathon. But it won't come soon. The general conflict between the Greek and Persian forces in the Mediterranean would ultimately last for decades, and we have other things to do in the meantime. It wasn't formalized yet in the late summer of 479 BCE, but the Greeks were well on their way to adopting a strategy of just being more trouble than they were worth. The Athenian admiral Xanthippus proposed an old plan. They would sail to the Hellespont and destroy the famous Persian pontoon bridge that spanned between Europe and Asia. You know, that bridge that was destroyed by a storm more than a year earlier. Apparently the Greeks still had no idea that Xerxes and his army had to be ferried across the Hellespont during their retreat in 480. The Greek navy, now including some ships from the Ionian rebels, sailed north to the mouth of the Hellespont and began moving up the strait. I can easily imagine all of the conversations starting to circulate among the sailors. The Ionians said the bridge was gone. Maybe that was a lie from the Persians. Maybe it was true. Maybe there never was a bridge at all. How much further could it possibly be? Too far, and the strait would be way too wide for a bridge. Finally, the fleet reached the cities of Abydos and Sestos, the first major pair of settlements across from each other, and the rumored location of Xerxes' pontoon bridge. But there was still no bridge in sight. They came ashore in Abydos on the Asian side of the strait and asked the locals who met them where the heck was this bridge? The Greeks of Abydos confirmed that there really had been a pair of monumental pontoon bridges spanning the Hellespont, but also confirmed that said bridges had been ravaged by a storm almost a full year earlier. Just like the aftermath of Salome, the Spartan commander declared mission accomplished, and most of the fleet sailed home. By now, news of the victory at Plataea had certainly caught up with the fleet, and the war seemed won. Autumn was rapidly approaching, and it wouldn't be safe for naval operations for much longer anyway. The Ionian Revolt would kick off in the spring, and then they could return. And just like the aftermath of Salome, the Athenians found themselves in a very different position. Xanthippus commanded 140 ships or so on behalf of a polis that had been completely ravaged by war. Mardonius had torched Athenian farmland that spring, and the city itself was in ruins. Athens needed money and food to get them through the winter, and Xanthippus knew just where to get it. Themistocles had raided the Persian allies in the Aegean, but Xanthippus now had the opportunity to attack Persians directly. Right across the Hellespont from Abydos was the city of Sestos, home of the main Persian garrison in the Chersonese. It was also home to Oyobazos, the Persian official who stored the massive ropes from the pontoon bridge. Those might be useful later. And another Artoktes, the satrap of Thrace. Sometime in the previous year, Artoktes had raided the nearby city of Elios and looted the Greek temples there, bringing home all of the treasure and votive offerings he could find. 
This probably suggests that Elios had been one of the rebel cities that concerned the Persians at the beginning of 479. All of this loot was still being stored in Sestos, which had no idea that an enemy army was about to arrive on its doorstep. But there were the Athenians, with as many as 30,000 men, and a very poorly prepared enemy city full to the brim with important enemy officers, treasure, and potential war trophies. Naturally, Xanthippus ordered his men to besiege the city. Evidently, Artoktes had no intention of relenting, or expected the naval force to give up as the weather got worse. But the siege dragged on even as summer came to a close. Meanwhile, back in mainland Greece, another siege was underway in the plains of Boeotia. Following the Battle of Plataea, the Greek army was still encamped near the battlefield and staring at enemy fortifications. The Persian camp had been cleared away, but the city of Thebes stood strong, defiant, and most importantly, Persian. Thebes was the largest and most powerful Greek city to side with Xerxes, and would eventually become the poster child for Medizing Greeks. If anyone absolutely had to suffer the consequences for surrendering peacefully, it was the rulers of Thebes. Eleven days after the Persians had fled, the Spartan regent Posanius marched the Greek army up to their supposed countrymen's walls and made his demands. Give up the men who had spearheaded the alliance with Persia, or face a siege. Thebes was ruled by an oligarchy, a small council of the most powerful and wealthy local nobles. So the list of Medizers was actually relatively short, but also included most of the men making military decisions. Of course, they refused, and the Greek forces invested their city. The siege lasted for 20 days, so a full month after the Persian defeat, and Thebes was beginning to buckle under pressure. They were completely cut off from their allies, surrounded by the largest Greek army ever assembled, and most importantly, that army was in control of all of the food and farmland for miles around. The besieging Greek army was more than happy to raid Boeotian farmland to supply themselves as punishment for supporting the Persians. Ultimately, Timogenides, formerly one of the most ardent Medizers in the city, proposed that they give up. First, they would offer as much money as they had in the public treasury to try and buy off the Greek leadership, and if that didn't work, they would have to surrender themselves to a public trial, on the assumption that they could just bribe whatever jury or tribunal Pausanias set up. Or at the very least, they could bribe their guards and escape. In classic, principled, Spartan style, Pausanias flatly refused their offer of money, so the Theban oligarchs turned themselves over to the enemy army. But Pausanias had no intention of giving them time to bribe their way out of retribution. They were immediately chained up, and Pausanias dismissed the army for that season. By now it was late September, and it was time to wrap up the campaign of 479 anyway. The Thebans were taken back to Corinth by the Spartan regent, where they were promptly executed far away from any familiar territory or friendly surroundings. Back in Sestos, the Athenian siege just kept going. 
Their siege probably began around the same time as the attack on Thebes, maybe even a few days earlier, but they were still in the Chersonese more than a month later. It's October now, and the rank-and-file Athenian sailors and hoplites had started asking their commanders to please go home. They had been away for most of a year, and the weather was getting cold and wet, but Xanthippus and his co-commanders refused to yield until either Sestos fell, or the Athenian assembly ordered them to return. As much as the Athenians may have felt like they were suffering, the conditions inside the city were immeasurably worse. Herodotus describes how they had completely run out of food to the point that people were eating the leather straps from their own beds to fill their stomachs. The situation was well and truly hopeless, and the Persian garrison resolved to abandon the city. In the dead of night, the small Persian army fled the city walls. They broke into two contingents, each led by one of the leading Persian nobles of the city. Oyobazos, who had been in charge of the pontoon bridge, led one part of the army north into Thrace. It's not clear from Herodotus how long they lasted, but ultimately this detachment was ambushed by a local Thracian tribe and never seen again. Herodotus says that Oyobazos himself became a human sacrifice and the rest of his force was simply massacred. There's not much evidence for actual human sacrifice in Thrace, but that's the story Herodotus went with. Always gotta make sure to make the foreigners look like barbarians. Artoktes, on the other hand, made it a few miles before the Athenians caught up with his force and attacked them trying to cross a small river outside of Sestos. Many of these Persian troops simply surrendered, including Artoktes himself and his son. Like his Theban allies on the far side of the Aegean, Artoktes tried to ransom himself and his son out of Greek captivity. Unfortunately for these Persian nobles, the Athenians had just seized their entire treasury by force and called their bluff. Xanthippus and the Athenians proved to be much more vindictive and cruel than Pausanias had been with his captives. Artoktes was crucified by the Athenians, and his son was tied up before his cross and stoned to death as his father was forced to watch. With Artoktes dead, Persian control of Thrace was isolated to just a few garrisons spread along the coast, with no central commander, and Athens found itself in de facto control of the northern Hellespont, securing their own access to the Black Sea grain trade and provisions to rebuild their city. Then, and only then, did Xanthippus and his men sail home with all of their Persian loot, none of which they returned to the Greek city of Elias. It's actually a bit of a historical fluke that the Athenians were able to capture Sestos. Had Plataea been even just a little less disastrous, or Thracian raiders attacked at slightly different times, Persian reinforcements might have turned up at Sestos while it was still under siege. While both of these sieges were ongoing, the Persian retreat from Greece was still underway. After watching the carnage unfold at Plataea, Artabazos took the remaining Persians and fled north into Thessaly. Once there, he stopped briefly to rest and resupply in the friendly Thessalian cities, where he lied through his teeth. 
In the days immediately after the defeat at Plataea, Artabazos told his hosts that Mardonius and the rest of the army would be right behind them. He even passed on orders to host the deceased general. Artabazos, on the other hand, had served his purpose and was taking his troops back to Sardis to report their obvious victory. Herodotus gives us the distinct sense that Artabazos proceeded to march as quickly through Thessaly and Macedon as his men possibly could, trying to stay ahead of the news from Plataea and avoid any potential betrayals from the Greek speakers, Macedonians included. According to Herodotus, he chose the shortest possible route back to Sardis. Instead of passing along the southeastern coast of Europe to restore Persian presence in Thrace as he had the year before, Artabazos marched straight through Thracian territory and away from Macedon. It probably didn't help that he was fully aware of an ongoing Greco-Thracian rebellion immediately east of Macedon that he had no intention of getting involved with again. His men couldn't put that down before Plataea, and he certainly wasn't going to risk it now. Instead, he raced towards Byzantium, harried by hostile Thracians and running low on food all the way. Once in Byzantium, they commandeered a few ships and ferried the survivors back to Europe. Had this flight gone just a bit differently, Artabazos almost certainly would have returned to Sestos. That had been the standard route taken by the Persians on their last three marches through Thrace, and would have brought Artabazos' army through more friendly cities, including Sestos. Had Artabazos and 20 to 40,000 men arrived outside the walls while Xanthippus was still there, they probably could have wiped out the Athenian navy, dramatically changing the rest of ancient Aegean history. But it was not to be. Artabazos took the most expedient route possible and probably had no idea that Sestos was under attack until he was already in Byzantium with his exhausted and hungry troops. Interestingly enough, we can be pretty sure that Artabazos did not tell Xerxes the same story that Herodotus told his audience. The version remembered in Greek history is that Artabazos hung back from the battle line at Plataea and led his troops away from the battle without ever fighting. Never fully convinced of Mardonius's plan in the first place, he was quick to abandon Greece and run away to friendly territory. However, once he got back, Xerxes rewarded him by placing him on the front line of this ongoing conflict in a new and higher-ranking role. Artabazos was soon named as the new satrap of Phrygia, in the northwestern corner of Anatolia. Here, he would be responsible for maintaining Persian control around the Hellespont. Not only that, but his position became hereditary, a rare honor for satraps in the early empire. Artabazos' descendants went on to hold the position until 360 BCE. Even after that, his descendants ruled the city of Chios in Pontus, where they may have remained local kings until the coming of the Roman Empire. It's not fully documented, but his great-great-great-grandson was named Mithridates and ruled part of Pontus when Alexander turned up. It's not a huge stretch from there. You don't get that kind of dynasty unless you tell a story that the king likes. And more importantly, 
one that he doesn't think you lied about later. It sure makes it seem like Herodotus is leaving something out here, but we really can't know what. Dio Chrysostom, a Greek philosopher in the 1st century CE, may provide a clue in his description of the supposed Persian history of the same events. Xerxes invaded Greece, and on the one hand, defeated the Spartans at Thermopylae and killed their king, Leonidas. And on the other hand, he captured the city of the Athenians and demolished it. And those who did not escape, he sold into slavery. After he accomplished this, he imposed tribute on the Greeks and returned to Asia. Obviously, this is not what actually happened, or at least it's not what happened forever. But it may be the story that Xerxes spun at home. We know that one of his royal inscriptions lists the Yona beyond the sea as his subjects. Some scholars insist that this firmly dates that inscription to the year 479, while others think this is the same trick that Darius pulled with the Saka Paradraya, claiming them in his propaganda despite his failed invasion of European Scythia. But of course, neither inscription XPH nor Dio Chrysostom's Persian history reflect reality. Beginning with Sestos, and really with Mikale, Greece went on an offensive against the King of Kings. The fall of Sestos also brings us to an end of Herodotus's histories. The last story he tells ties the crucified Artoktes back to Cyrus the Great. Though the story is almost certainly made up, it makes a fitting ending. According to Herodotus, one of Artoktes' ancestors was a tribal leader called Artembares, who encouraged Cyrus to expand his empire beyond the borders of Media. He told Cyrus that their current territory was too small and rugged, but also that the Persians were great men who could seize and inhabit more fertile lands. After all, there were many candidates all around them. Anatolia, Mesopotamia, Bactria, and so on were all ripe for the taking. In response, Cyrus warned Artembares and all of his people, from lands which are not rugged, so men who are not rugged will likely come forth. Just as it does not behoove to the same land to bring forth fruits of the earth, which are desirable and also men who are skilled in war. According to Herodotus, this led Artembares to leave and choose to dwell in the infertile mountains and plateaus rather than comfortable lands surrounding them, where they would become the same as their subjects. Of course, Herodotus's moral is also clear in the subtext. By the time of Xerxes, the Persians had not just subjugated their neighbors, but moved in with them. From Bactria to Egypt, Persians embraced the wealth and creature comforts of their empire, and to Herodotus and his Greek audience, importing grain from the Crimea and surrounded by rugged olive trees, this meant that Persia must be in decline, while the Greeks were still hardy warriors. I think we'll see that this hypothesis does not bear any more fruit than Herodotus's misguided idea of the Zagros Mountains. But that's a story for another day. This would make a great ending to the story, and it is a fitting ending to the histories. But part of what I want to demonstrate in this episode is that it wasn't the end. 
The winter of 479 to 478 came and went, and in the spring, the war resumed. But in lieu of Herodotus, I should probably acknowledge our new sources. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Of course, most of them aren't new-new. Some, like Theseus, Xenophon, and especially Diodorus Siculus, have been around and will stay around for some time to come. Diodorus will actually pop in and out of my sources until the aforementioned Mithridates is defeated by Rome in about 300 years of narrative, since he was a Roman historian. Other sources, especially from the Roman period, will also pop in and out as necessary, but most of those have already made an appearance in the stories of Cyrus or Darius. The new entry today is Thucydides. Usually considered the second member of the Holy Trinity of Greek historians, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War covers the gap in Greek history between the end of Herodotus and Xenophon's Hellenica. However, as the title of Thucydides' history may imply, it is much more focused on Greek history. Say what you want about Herodotus, but at least he and I were telling the same story. From now, really until Darius II, historians have to piece bits of different Greco-Roman sources together with Persian letters and receipts to create any kind of coherent narrative. 
Most of the battles I'm going to cover in the rest of this episode are just kind of mentioned in passing by these sources, especially Thucydides, who is much more concerned with laying the foundation for the wars that would tear across Greece for much of the 5th century. 478 saw two more major battles unfold, and by major, I mean Thucydides thought they were worth mentioning. The Greek army did not reconvene, and ultimately it never would. For all the punishment meted out against the Theban oligarchs, the kings of Thessaly, who had actively invited the Persians in, were apparently left to their own devices. Several of their cities apparently saw changes in government, with either tyrannies or democracies displacing the old ruling class, but not much is said about it. Instead, Posanius took control of the fleet while Leotychidas stayed home. The Greek navy promptly sailed east to disrupt Persian control in the Aegean and support the second generation of Ionian rebels. The Persian fleet was still in shambles and stretched thin by the island uprisings of places like Lesbos and Samos. With the threat of invasion over, and Athens in desperate need of repairs, the size of the fleet was greatly decreased. Pausanias commanded just 50 ships. They were probably overstuffed with marines, but it was still just one-sixth of their strength at Salome, and probably indicative of how, in the cold light of day, the mainland Greeks just didn't prioritize the success of the rebellion in Ionia. This small fleet attacked the island of Cyprus, which archaeology tells us was dotted with Persian garrisons. Thucydides only says that the Greeks subdued the greater part of the island, but there is no evidence that Cyprus ever fell out of Persian control. In all likelihood, this was a raid that came and went to the many different ports and cities on the island attacking Persian garrisons and looting to fill up their post-war coffers. However, as an Athenian writing about his city's decades-long conflict with Sparta, Thucydides is much more interested in where the shrunken Greek fleet went after Cyprus. From there, they sailed back through the Hellespont, passing the newly friendly cities of Sestos and Abydos on their way. Under Persian control, it ensured that the great kings were in command of any and all trade coming out of the Black Sea. Most of Greece, especially the southern part where the Hellenic League was strongest, was constantly in need of imported grain, and the Greek colonists and settled Scythians of the Crimea were one major supplier. Athens, in particular, was still recovering and heavily dependent on these imports. By taking Byzantium, they could secure that trade route for Greece. Once again, Thucydides cares less about the actual battle and uses it as a stepping stone for his own narrative. All he says is that the Greeks besieged the city and took control. As the commander of the Greek forces, Pausanias was now the de facto military governor of Byzantium, but he was soon engulfed in scandal. The Spartan commander had started exchanging letters with Xerxes, still in residence at Sardis, and Artabazos in Phrygia. He was even accused of courting either one or both of the Persians' daughters. In exchange, he was apparently offering to go over to their side and help lead a coup in the Peloponnese. Rumors of this betrayal got back to Sparta, and he was recalled by the ephors. He was also accused, vaguely, of leading the army as a tyrant, 
and was forced to stand trial for both accusations. He was not convicted, but he was not sent back to Byzantium. Other Spartan commanders were sent in his stead, but the non-Peloponnesians centered on Athens had enough of Sparta. They rejected all of the Spartan commanders, and the Peloponnesian fleet sailed home. With that, the Hellenic League, the greatest unifying force in Greek history prior to Philip and Alexander, functionally came to an end. Sparta and their Peloponnesian League returned to their homes, while Athens and their newfound Ionian and Islander allies resolved to form a new alliance. Led by the Athenian aristocrat Aristides, they sailed to the island of Delos, now a well-established naval base for the allied Greek fleet, and drew up new oaths. The new allies were basically the non-Peloponnesian members of the Old League, but would spend the next decade adding new members to what was officially called the Athenian Alliance, but history knows better as the Delian League. The cities involved pledged to have the same enemies, support one another militarily, and exact vengeance against Persian territory. Individual member cities were given the option to pay a tax to support the League, or provide troops. Most chose to pay the tax, while only Athens and a few others would form the actual military. Whether intentional or not, it effectively formed an Athenian empire where League members did not maintain their own militaries, and Athens had nearly unrivaled military dominance. Though not a problem yet, the ultimate consequence was that if someone wanted out and stopped paying their taxes, only Athens had a military and could bring them back into the League by force. The League treasury was stored on Delos, where they had formed their pact, but beyond that, we don't hear much about the rest of the 478 campaign season. Presumably, there was minimal Persian retaliation at sea, following the destruction of the fleet, but the army was still present in Anatolia, and was busy trying to assault Ionian cities as they broke into ad hoc revolts. Most of the Greek sources gloss over this period entirely, but Theseus makes one reference to the events. After their betrayal in the mountain passes at Mycale, the city of Miletus was considered in open rebellion. With unimpeded access to the sea, it was just as difficult to besiege in 478 as it had been 20 years earlier during the original Ionian Revolt. Instead of trying to take Miletus outright, Xerxes seems to have started by sending a small force to raid and destroy the Milesian sanctuary of Didyma, a famous oracle to the god Apollo, and the same temple that Cyrus the Great had patronized during his own conquest of the region. For the most part, these operations were successful, no major Ionian city seceded to join the Delian League in the immediate wake of its foundation, so Xerxes and his commanders must have been doing something right. Thucydides is equally mum about the events of the next year. 477 saw the first year of open campaigning under the Delian League, but for most of the next seven years, the timeline of Greco-Persian conflict is largely ignored by Thucydides. At some point in 477 or maybe 475, the Athenians assaulted the city of Aeon, a Persian garrison in Thrace, at the mouth of the Struma River. The city fell, giving Athens control of yet another strategic point around the Aegean. 
From there, the Athenians moved on to the island city of Skyros, which had taken up piracy in the absence of Persian authority, and subjugated the Skyrians as well. Both were forced to join the Delian League after their respective battles by the new Athenian general, Cimon, son of Miltiades. Cimon's anti-Persian pedigree was practically unrivaled in Athens, as his father had been the strategist credited with the victory at Marathon, but most of his exploits at this early stage go unrecorded. Some specific Athenian, or I suppose Delian League, conquests are mentioned briefly by Themistocles, namely the city of Charistos in Euboea, but most of the islands and the coast of the Aegean were absorbed into the League over the course of the 470s. Long-standing Persian possessions like Naxos, Rhodes, and other islands in the Cyclades next appear as tax-paying members of the League. Ongoing rebellions against Persian control also seem to have rolled into the Athenian-led alliance, with cities like Potidaea and Olynthos signing up in the Chalcidiches. As more and more islands and strategic coastal positions were either taken by force or joined Athens willingly, the areas in between saw which way the wind was blowing and signed up with the new regional power. Meanwhile, the Spartan situation was shifting rapidly. Pausanias had returned to Byzantium in 477, where both Thucydides and Diodorus suggest he openly sided with the Persians and took up residence as the great king's appointed tyrant, ruling the city in his own right as Persian governor after evicting the Greeks once again. He may have held this position for the rest of the decade. Like I said, the actual timeline at this point is not clear. That said, a period of unclear events in the Aegean make the perfect opportunity to wrench ourselves out of Greece for a bit and go back to the Persian Empire to see what exactly Xerxes was doing as king. This included managing a changing political environment on the Western Front, but also dealing with rebellions in the East, building projects in the imperial center, and reigning over the nobility at the height of imperial power. So next time, we'll see some actual Persian Empire on this Persian History podcast, after a full 10 episodes of War in Greece. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you'll find more information about the show and me on the About page, my bibliography, the Achaemenid Royal Family Tree, and the Support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this podcast. That includes things like Patreon, where you can sign up for a monthly subscription to get access to additional content like ad-free listening or bonus episodes, including the upcoming episode on 300 Rise of an Empire. You don't have to support the show financially to be supportive, though. You can also share the show on social media and tell everybody how much you love the history of Persia. That is the number one way to help a small, independent podcast like this grow and reach new people. I also always love to see reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or whatever other platform you happen to listen on. Your feedback is always appreciated. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.